0: Hi, and welcome to Class 25, wherein we look at Tom Bombadil's singing, his conflict with the Barrowite, and then discuss the nature of wraiths. I'd like to make one note before we begin, though. If you have started listening to these class recordings after the fact, you might perhaps be tempted to listen to them out of sequence. I can imagine, for instance, someone who likes The Lord of the Rings, but who has never read The Silmarillion, coming across this podcast and deciding just to jump in and listen to the class recordings on The Lord of the Rings. If you do this, keep in mind that my class has worked through the Silmarillion in advance, chiefly so that the larger, more mythic ideas that are raised in the legends of the Elder Days may illuminate some of the dominant themes of the Lord of the Rings. Throughout our discussion of the Lord of the Rings, therefore, both I and my students will be making many references to the Silmarillion, and you may have a hard time following some of the conversation if you're not familiar with it. Therefore, I would recommend that you go back, read through the Silmarillion, and follow along with the earlier classes before you listen to these Lord of the Rings classes. Things will make a lot more sense that way. And now, at last, we'll move on to the fourth class on the Fellowship of the Ring. Okay, I want to... Go back to Tom Bombadil. Um... The... The exact question... you know, I've already mentioned a couple times the, the, the infamous uh, do Balrogs have wings question which has uh, engaged uh, apparently hundreds of thousands of people for uh, tens of millions of hours uh, of internet discussion. But uh, the question which is only slightly less popular than that uh, for discussion and debate uh, is who is Tom Bombadil? Um, and ultimately, I don't think The answer to that question is enormously important. That is, uh, Tolkien did not take... Well, I was about to... Okay, what I was about to say is a terrible understatement, but I'll say it anyway. Tolkien did not take great care fully to integrate Tom Bombadil into uh, his world. Tom Bombadil was a pre-existing character. He had written some poems about Tom Bombadil prior to writing The Lord of the Rings, and he liked him and just imported him. Um, Now, of course, he imports much... Stuff into, you know, as, as time goes on uh, and he fully brings in. Do you remember that image in Leaf by Nigel? About as, you know, Nigel used to make lots of paintings, and then as time went on, he focused more and more and more on his great tree and began to take his other little paintings and tack them on to the edges of his big painting. Tolkien was kind of like that. Um, and Tom Bombadil is, in one sense, uh, you know, some, one of those other minor works that gets brought in and kind of tacked on. Um, now, Therefore, I'm not sure how fruitful it is for us to spend a lot of time saying within the system uh, of, of, of Arda that he creates exactly where does Tom Bombadil fall. Tom gives us some information about that in his little speeches. But I think far more important than trying to nail down where in the scheme of, you know, of, of, of Middle Earth theology does Tom Bombadil fit, um, far a far better question is what is his significance? What, is his, what, is, what, what does Tolkien focus on in his character? What role does he play in this story? Um, and I think that uh, the sort of the more abstract and theoretical debates, um, though they are something which Tolkien's, sort of the detail of Tolkien's secondary world invite us to, to the, the questions that he invites us to ask, nevertheless, I think they're secondary in importance compared to his role in the story. And the number one thing I want to focus on about Tom Bombadil uh, before we move on is his poetry. Because poetry and song are probably more important to Tom Bombadil than to any other character that we've seen. We've already talked about the significance of poetry in general and song in particular from the Silmarillion on forward. Um, And and even before the the Silmarillion, you'll remember its role in in Smith of Wooten Major, for instance. Um, So song and, 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 and poetry... Very important. But again, to nobody, to no individual character or group of characters in Tolkien's works is song more central than to Tom Bombadil. He is song. Uh, He never expresses himself, not in song. Just, uh, I asked you at the end of class last time to go back and reread some of his speeches aloud. Uh, Did you do it? And did you notice the metrical rhythm? If you read his singing, like go to page 117. And you, if you can get the rhythm of his song, the meter of his song into your head, then go read his prose, right? We've got, Hey, come, merry doll, dairy doll, my darling. Light goes the weather wind and the feathered starling. Down along, under hill, shining in the sunlight, waiting on the doorstep for the cold sunlight. Now, that's actually... Uh, that's... Okay. Anyway. Um, look... Look down the page. If you take out the interjected prose and you just read his words, what, old man willow, not worse than that, eh? That can soon be mended. I know the tune for him, old gray willow man. I'll freeze his marrow cold if he don't behave himself. I'll sing his roots off. I'll sing a wind up and blow leaf and branch away, old man willow. Go to 122. The very bottom of the page. Tom, Tom, your guests are tired and you had near forgotten. Come now, my merry friends, and Tom will refresh you. You shall clean grimy hands and wash your weary faces. Cast off your muddy cloaks and comb out your tangles. You hear it? Everything he says is in this same meter. Sometimes more loosely, sometimes more rigidly. But he never says anything where he's not singing. 126. When they wake up in the morning. I have been walking wide, leaping on the hilltops Since the gray dawn began, nosing wind and weather Wet grass underfoot, wet sky above me I waken goldberry singing under window But not wakes hobbit folk in the early morning In the night, little folk, wake up in the darkness And sleep after light has come, ring-a-ding, Dillo Wake now, my merry friends, forget the nightly noises Ring-a-ding, Dillo-dell, Derry-dell, my hearties If you come soon, you'll find breakfast on the table If you come late, you'll get grass and rainwater That one's a particular giveaway as he actually breaks into his ring a ding dillo dell in the middle of his supposedly prose speech there, right? Again, one hundred forty one. Post Barrow White. Tom talking about his pony. He's mine, my four-legged friend, though I seldom ride him, and he wanders often far, free upon the hillsides. When your ponies stayed with me, they got to know my lumpkin, and they smelt him in the night and quickly ran to meet him. I thought he'd look for them, and with his words of wisdom, take all their fear away. But now, my jolly lumpkin, old Tom's going to ride. Hey, he's coming with you, just to set you on the road, so he needs a pony, for you cannot easily talk to hobbits that are riding when you're on your own legs trying to trot beside them. Hear it? He never, ever, ever stops singing. Um, And you'll also notice that when they're there, the hobbits start singing too. Frodo's first thing when he comes in and meets Goldberry is to break into poetry, and he has no idea what he's doing or why, or why he's saying it. Um, There's a moment, it's just, we're just told about it. We don't actually get the quotations. But they find themselves... Uh, after the meal, when they're sitting around with Tom, they realize that they're singing merrily because it seemed more natural than talking. Even without realizing it, they've been breaking into song. Jordan? I remember, I think it was last class, you asked who he was, and the two responses people gave were, he is the master and he is. Yes. If he is song, then those are doubly true because if he is, that means the world is a song, so existence is a song. And the master, the songs have a great power in this world, in this setting. So, I mean, by being sung, so, he's a master of power, basically. Yes. And he d- doesn't use it. Good. Good. The two things that we've seen singing connected with very frequently are creation, in the actual creation, of the and sub-creation. Right? Now, you could say that even in the music of the Ainur, the song wasn't the creative act itself. Right. The creative act is Iluvatar saying, ea Be right. He speaks into the emptiness, and the world is, and that world is merely the articulation of the song of the the song that was made by the Ainur. The Ainur don't actually bring the world into being, Um, but still, this is the line between subcreation and creation is arguably a little fine there with the music of the Ainur, and then later on with enchantment, right? When we see, uh, as Tolkien articulates in On Fairy Stories. Enchantment being sort of the ultimate version of subcreation, the creation of a secondary world into which you can completely draw uh, the observer, even even with the senses, right? And we've seen examples of that, as for instance Bilbo's reaction to the dwarf song at the beginning of The Hobbit, when he is drawn in and feels these dwarfish feelings and s- finds himself thinking dwarfish thoughts. He's actually sort of sucked into by enchantment or a kind of enchantment into the dwarfish worldview there, um, and. Tom does the same thing on a couple of occasions. Look at 127. Tom is also, in this sense, an enchanter. Bottom of the page, as they listened, they began to understand the lives of the forest apart from themselves, indeed to feel themselves as the strangers where all other things were at home, moving constantly in and out of his talk was old man Willow and Frodo learned now enough to content him indeed more than enough, for it was not comfortable lore Tom's words laid bare the hearts of trees and their thoughts, which were often dark and strange and filled with a hatred of things that go free upon the earth, gnawing, biting, breaking, hacking, burning, destroyers, and usurpers. It was not called the old forest without reason, for it was indeed ancient. And he goes on, it as they go, they become drawn into the mindset of the forest, just as, as Tom is singing about the forest, they have the same experience with the forest that Bilbo had with the dwarves, back in Bag End at the beginning of The Hobbit. Um, there's another moment of enchantment like this that happens again, even with sort of less prompting, um, on 142, near the very end of their near the very end of their discussions, few now remember them, yet still some go wandering, sons of forgotten kings, walking in loneliness, guarding from evil, things, folk that are heedless. The hobbits did not understand his words, but as he spoke, they had a vision, as it were, of a great expanse of years behind them, like a vast shadowy plain over which there strode shapes of men, tall and grim with bright swords, and last came one with a star on his brow. Who happens to be listening in the bushes, actually, while they're having this conversation, as it happens. Um, But you remember that Strider is actually in the bushes listening to this final conversation between them and Tom Bombadil. Um, he doesn't have the star in his brow yet, but we'll see it later on. Um, he's, of course, he, Tom Bombadil, is, of course, talking about the rangers here of the north, the, the, the Dunedain, as Bilbo is at some pains to try to explain uh, to Frodo the significance of the rangers. Now, he has power. As Jordan says, this kind of song is associated with power, with authority, We can see the way we have seen before, the way that song is used to make things happen and to combat evil. We saw Finrod do it unsuccessfully. We saw Luthien do it much more successfully. We see Tom Bombadil do it very similarly and very successfully. We get another little poetry duel here between Tom and the Barrow White. Look on page 139. First, we have the Barrow-White Song. Cold be hand and heart and bone, and cold be sleep under stone. Never more to wake on stony bed. Never till the sun fails and the moon is dead. In the black wind the stars shall die, and still on gold here let them lie. Till the dark lord lifts his hand over dead sea and withered land. I doubt he's talking about Sauron here. It seems like we are. He's talking about Morgoth. But, possibly he means Sauron, but I'm not sure. Notice this incantation, as Frodo identifies it. This, this little song by the Barrow White, this verse, is designed to make something happen. Cold be heart, hand and heart and bone. Still on gold here, let them lie. It's making commands. It's trying to create something, to create the effect that it sings about. And it's opposed by two of Tom's songs. First, of course, his favorite song about his jacket and his boots. But of course, he goes on to that to add a significant couplet None has ever caught him yet, for Tom he is the master. His songs are stronger songs, and his feet are faster. Now, look at his actual attack on the white. Get out, you old white, vanish in the sunlight, shrivel like the cold mist, like the winds go wailing, out into the barren lands, far beyond the mountains, come never here again, leave your barrow empty, lost and forgotten be, darker than the darkness, where gates stand forever shut till the world is mended. He comes with some verse commands of his own, and we're done here. At these words, there was a cry and part of the inner end of the chamber fell in with a crash. Then there was a long trailing shriek fading away into an unguessable distance. Uh, Presumably uh, going to where gates stand forever shut. Notice the description right before Tom's verse, or rather in between Tom's verses. There was a loud rumbling sound as of stones rolling and falling, and suddenly light streamed in, real light, the plain light of day. A low door-like opening appeared at the end of the chamber beyond Frodo's feet, and there was Tom's head, hat, feather, and all, framed against the light of the sun, rising red behind him. The light fell upon the floor and upon the faces of the three hobbits lying beside Frodo. They did not stir, but the sickly hue had left them. They looked now as if they were only very deeply asleep. Even before he kicks out the barrow white. He's already won. Do you see what their two songs are doing? What are they singing about? How are they opposed to each other? Yeah, Brittany? There is a clear darkness versus light trend. And what happens is, of course, what always happens when darkness and light compete with each other. There's no competition, right? You have a dark room and you introduce light, then it's light, right? That's the nature of darkness. That's the nature of light. And that's what happens when Tom Bombadil comes into a barrow. It turns out in that way to be rather disappointingly unlike Finrod versus Sauron in the Silmarillion, right? Right? No real competition, don't he? I think the last lines are some of the most important just because they talk about the land and how the white, the dead sea and withered land. And Tom's, I mean, in one sense Tom's agreeing that they're dead and withered and he's saying when the world is mended. Yes. And just implying that there is something wrong with the world already. Yes, good. Uh, for Tom to be opposing the darkness with a sort of a blind light, right? Oh, I have no you're saying everything is, is, should be horrible. No, I'm saying everything is, is wonderful. He recognizes that it's not. Um, he does recognize that the world needs mending. But, of course, in saying that, you are both recognizing the evil and saying, it's going to get mended, <laughs> right? Uh, expressing hope and confidence, as he certainly does. Good, good. Derek? Well, um, I think they both like, that um, is saying about, like, how this was going to end, like, he said, um, the barrel, I was, like, saying with... When uh, the Dark Lord raises his hand and comes back to life, I was thinking he meant Margoth returning from the Void, or, like, it could mean he's never going to return from the Void, so he's got to be stuck here forever. And uh, Tom Bobadil, like, he was saying, if uh, the Barrow White meant when the Dark Lord returns and destroys everything, he's like, no, that's not what's going to happen. The world's going to be fixed. Right. And where's the Barrow White going to be? Where do gates stand forever shut? Niena's back. <laughs> back porch, exactly. That's exactly where they are. Yeah, and presumably, uh, Thomas is, is is ushering him out the same hatch that Morgoth was shoved through at the end of the first stage. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Rachel? Not to so, dwell on it too much, but I think what I think is going on is Barrowit is trying to exert influence over something that he has no right to be dominating. Yes. And Tom is instead pointing out that he's not supposed to be here because that's his place. He's supposed to be back in the darkness. Yes. I think that's another significant difference in their songs. Yes, there's. Tom is asserting what things are and what things should be. And ultimately, as Tony points out, what things will be in the end. The Barrow White is blindly and stubbornly insisting on trying to make things what they aren't, right? He's trying to change things, and in a particular way. Notice that I mean we, we've talked about this especially back in the Silmarillion, thinking about Ungoliant and, and Melkor and Feanor, and, uh, you know we're looking at the patterns of evil and how evil people act and what evil is like. The Barrow White gives us another little interesting case study uh, in evil creatures in Tolkien. Right? Um, what does the Barrow White want? You know we hear about the, the terrible spells of the Barrow Whites. What are they? What does the Barrow White try to do to them? It seems to me more than just killing them. Jordan? He wants to make them into more baleoites. He wants to, like, the, the, in, back to the very melody of the Pothenoliana, he's trying to assimilate them into a lockstep unity. Yeah, the, that assimilation, I think, I think it's interesting thinking of it in terms of the unison uh, in Melkor's song. That is a pattern that we see in evil from the beginning. It wants to make them like him. And it's also, it's envious, The Dreadful Spells of the Barrowites. Look at the bottom of 137. When Frodo is listening to the song, before he makes out the words, out of the formless stream of sad but horrible sounds, strings of words would now and again shape themselves, grim, hard, cold words, heartless and miserable. The night was railing against the morning of which it was bereaved, and the cold was cursing the warmth for which it hungered. That's the context. That's the prompting we get before we get the verse, which, artic- which, which articulates it more clearly. It is envious, just like Ungoliant. It desires the light and hates it. It feeds on so the Baroites feed on warmth and light, but hate it and envy it, and they try to make them like that. I mean, the, the spell that, they're, that it is placing on the hobbits. The incantation it's saying is that they shall be like it. Cold be hand and heart and bone. Nevermore to wake on stony bed. It wants to make them into little grave figures. Wants them to lie there on the golden treasures inside the barrow forever. And remember Mary's experience when he wakes up. He has memories. What are his memories? you recall what, what... Mary remembers when he wakes up. Rachel. Um, someone stabbed him heart. <laughs> He remembers being killed. Yeah. Um, and he says, "Oh yeah, yeah, yeah Nick." Oh, so he remembers being betrayed by men. I the Yeah, he says, "The men of Carn Doom came on us at night, and we were worsted. The men of Carn doom are the followers of the Witch King of Angmar, uh, and." They, and the enemies of the witch king of Angmar up there in that region were the Dunedain, the old kingdoms in the north, whose barrows these were originally. Um, so he is actually sort of put in the place of, even given the memories of, the dead Numenorian whose tomb he's lying in. You see? into whose grave these dark spirits, the Barrow Whites, have entered in order to perpetuate their evil, right? So this, there's this assimilation, I think, is a good way to think about it. This is what, just, I mean, again, to, this is what I always come back to. Ungoliant is, for me, always the, the most perfect illustration of what it means to be evil in Tolkien's world, that her literal hunger and desire physically to assimilate all that is bright and all that is good um, and to make it part of herself and then to spin it forth in darkness or unlight. That's what all evil creatures ultimately do. And we see we see the, the Barrowite doing the same thing. Anyway, this all started as an illustration, of course, of Tom's singing uh, and the power of his singing. You'll remember that we don't hear the other side of it when he's singing, when he puts his mouth to the crack uh, of the willow tree and sings his song there, um, He's doing the same thing. He calls old man Willow a mighty singer. Um, the Willow tree was singing too. And that's what drew them down there to the withy window and put them to sleep uh, was the power of the, of, of, of the Willow man's song. So that's another little uh, song competition. Um, just that we only happen to hear one sign of. One last point. Tom's connection not only with life, but also with with, with life and with nature. Uh, remember the, the immediate treatment that he recommends for, 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 for Sam and Pippin and Mary as they're trying to recover themselves? He's going to go back into the barrow and bring out the treasure and scatter it, and therefore break the power of the enchantment on the barrow, he says. And in the meantime... He prescribes something for them. You remember, Tony? Do you remember? Run naked on the grass. Run naked on the grass. That's exactly it. Yes. Run naked on the grass because they're naked because they, they took off the stuff that the barrow had put on them and their own clothes were gone. Um, there's that charming moment when Sam is looking around for his clothes. Right? Um, and so he said, Run naked on the grass. <laughs> I was trying not to go there, but uh, in fact, perhaps I would drop this entire line uh, as the local relevance might perhaps be too inescapable. But uh, nor would I want to be seen as, in some sense, endorsing it? But I think you see the point. Let me move on. Now, uh, <laughs> I have absolutely no response for that. Uh, Okay, okay, no, wait. One last thing I want to say about Tom Bombadil, and this, I think, is the most important thing. We talked at the beginning about how ridiculous he is, about how silly he is, how unapologetically absurd um, his his verse, very, again, with his, you know, you know, Dillard, my hearty, and all of this stuff, right? Um, in fact, I would say it's ridiculous in almost exactly the same way as the Tra-La-La-Lolly song back in The Hobbit that the elves are singing. Um, And there's one moment that we get near the end of the Tom Bombadil episode where Tolkien points to, I think, what is going on here. It's not just that Tom is actually crazed or silly or ridiculous or something, um, but this is on page 143. Halfway down the second paragraph after the break... It was a merry journey with Tom Bombadil trotting gaily beside them or before them on Fatty Lumpkin, who could move much faster than his girth promised. Tom sang most of the time, but it was chiefly nonsense or else perhaps a strange language unknown to the hobbits, an ancient language whose words were mainly those of wonder and delight. That, I think, is the closest we get to a direct explanation of what's happening with Tom Bombadil and his singing. All of those nonsense syllables that sound like nonsense syllables, to us and to the hobbits, that's just because we don't speak his language. He is speaking this ancient language, this pure language, this language whose words were mainly those of wonder and delight. And to serious, jaded people later on, it just sounds silly or even crazy. And so we may respond when we hear the elves in Rivendell singing their ridiculous little song. And we may respond when we see Tom singing about his jacket and his boots. But it seems, perhaps, there is more to it, much more to it. And that this, these ideas of wonder and delight are, I think, the most important aspects of Tom Bombadil. That if you want to talk about who he is or what he is, that, more than anything else, is, is what I would say is the role that he plays in this book. He is living still perfectly within this world of wonder and delight. He's not naive. He is perfectly well aware of what's going on. He's aware of the history of the world. He's aware of the darkness around them. He, he's next door neighbors with the Barrow Whites. right? He knows all these things. He knows more than they do. He finds that brooch, and he remembers something sad in connection with it. He knows the backstory of this, and there was some tragedy, presumably, back in the kingdom of of, of, of the Numenorians that lived there, the northern kingdom of Arnor. We never find out whose brooch that was or what the backstory was. There's a line of hills that they come to and he seems to remember something sad about it, about the, the, the line of the road when they get down to it. Well, that's because the line of the road there was the border between two of the kingdoms of Arnor. There came a time in the, in the history of the northern kingdom of the Numenorians when they split into three different sub-kingdoms and began to factionalize and decline, seriously. And that line used to be the boundary between two of them. And it makes Tom sad to think about that. So he's not ignorant, very far from it. He is aware of the sadness of the world, but still, the world he lives in, the world of which he is master, and which he will not leave, is still fundamentally, primarily, a world of wonder and delight. And he is a relic of that. And it will be interesting, therefore, that at the very end of the story, when everything else is done, Gandalf is going to say, I'm going to go hang out with Tom Bombadil for a while now. Well, I've been meaning to sit down and have a long talk with Tom Bombadil for a long time, but I haven't had time. Now now it's time for some ring-a-ding-dillo for a while. I'm going to get back in touch with the ring-a-ding-dillo that, he's been, that, he, that he, Gandalf, has... In some sense, kind of left behind. Right? That purity of wonder and delight, now is the time to return to that. Um, anyway, in our remaining time, I want to pick up, now that we have more information, on one of the things we started talking about last time that is, Wraithology 101. What on earth is going on with the ring wraiths and what's happening here and what do we learn? So, um, first off, Aragorn tells us some of what they are on page 185. One of the things, of course, that is happening throughout this first half of the book is that most of the people that Frodo meets know exactly who the Ringwraiths are, and Frodo still hasn't put it together yet. Um, So, I mean, Gildor refers to them, and Strider refers to them, um, uh, even Tom, to some extent, And they're all making assumptions about it. Uh, You know, like, for instance, when uh, Strider, the morning after the attack, says, uh, there seemed to have been only five of them. Why they weren't all here, I can't think. Um, And, of course, because he knows there are nine of them. Um, and he mentioned before, I know their number, right? But again, he, there's sometimes when, when times they, when they sort of, sli- when they, meaning Strider and Gildor and Gorfindel, will kind of slip and uh, speak like they assume that everybody else, including us, knows exactly what they're talking about. Um, on 185 is when they talk about the, the black riders that they've just seen down by the road. Um, and Mary asks, can they see? I mean, they seem to have been sniffing for us before, but when we were up on the hill, you made us get down like they could see us from, from, from a distance. What's going on? And he says, For the black horses can see, and the riders can use men and other creatures as spies, as we found at Bree. They themselves do not see the world of light as we do, but our shapes cast shadows in their minds, which only the noon sun destroys. And in the dark, they perceive many signs and forms that are hidden from us. Then they are most to be feared. And at all times they smell the blood of living things, desiring and hating it. Senses, too, there are other than sight or smell. We can feel their presence. It troubled our hearts. As soon as we came here and before we saw them, they feel ours more keenly. Also, he added, and his voice sank to a whisper, the ring draws them. This is why the riders in the Shire were sniffing. They weren't sniffing for the ring, they were sniffing for the blood of the hobbits. They were looking for a living thing there hiding in the bushes. Something, you know, bigger than a squirrel and smaller than a man. Um, I don't know if they can recognize the scent of Hobbit. It doesn't seem to be a scent thing in the same way you'll remember Smaug and Bilbo talking about dwarf scent versus hobbit scent. He, Smaug, couldn't place hobbit scent because he'd never smelled it before. It doesn't seem exactly like that kind of smelling. It's the blood of living things that they can smell and that they can perceive. The ring draws them, though clearly not that Directly and not that forcibly, or they would have been drawn more, clear, more plainly to Frodo before when he was hiding in the bushes. Um, but they seem to have a general aware, awareness of what it is. They can see very poorly in the day. they can see much better in the night. They can see and, and our forms cast shadows in their minds, Strider says. All still a little bit unclear. Gandalf says to Frodo, when you put the ring on, then you are half in the wraith world yourself. And notice what happens when he does on page 191. Immediately, though everything else remained as before, dim and dark, the shapes, that is the shapes of the riders, of course, became terribly clear. He was able to see beneath their black wrappings. They were five tall figures, two standing on the lip of the dell, three advancing. In their white faces burned keen and merciless eyes. Under their mantles were long gray robes, and upon their gray hairs were helms of silver. In their haggard hands were swords of steel. Um, so he sees, and this is why, you know, he, he, when he wakes up, he's like, where is the pale king? And nobody knows what he's talking about, because nobody else can see them uh, except for him. So there, there appear to be, in one sense anyway, two worlds a physical and a spiritual world. Gandalf uses the phrase the other side at one point. You know, he speaks of Frodo seeing Glorfindel and saying you saw him for a moment as he appears on the other side. The wraiths live in one of these world, worlds, but the two of them are connected together. And so they cast shadows in this one. You can see their shapes and their outlines, but they don't appear to have physical bodies exactly because they live in the wraith world. But we can still see them. They still have some kind of being here. The Kalaquendi live in both. Those who live in the blessed realm dwell at once on both sides, Gandalf says. And so this is why when Frodo, who has begun to fade and is almost in the wraith world full time, by the time they get to the ford, because of the the knife, that was what the knife was designed to do. The reason that they just stabbed him and moved off was that they were trying to make him into a wraith, at which point the reclamation of the ring is going to be pretty simple. But it fails, Because they stabbed him, not in the heart, where it would have been instantaneous, but in the shoulder. And therefore, the point of the knife has to work its way laboriously up through his body to his heart. Which it does not quite do. They find it in time. Um, This is why, although his wound has closed, as Sam points out, it looked like he should be getting better. It was a really small wound anyway. What's the problem? That's, That's the problem. And as it gets closer, he fades more and more. Until the shapes of his friends become shadowy. He can't really see them as clearly. And Gorfindel is this bright, shining white figure when he reveals himself and his wrath there on the edge of the ford. Um, notice <laughs> Gorfindel's casual fearlessness about the wraiths. He's not afraid of them. Um, I love the understated way in which he describes his conflict with the ring wraiths on the bridge, the bridge where he left the Elfstone in the mud on the bridge is a token that they could pass safely and they come and they find it and Strider's trying to interpret what that means. You remember that? Um, you know, he, he just says, I found some of the servants of Sauron on, on the bridge, but they withdrew and I pursued them. <laughs> but they withdrew. They just, they run away when they see him and he chases them. They withdrew. I, I, I That's very, 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 very understated. Um, they won't even stand up to him. And he is one of the things that propel... Only a few of them are actually in the river when the flood comes. The rest of them plunge into the river when Gorfindel comes up behind them. Uh, that's, that's... It's serious stuff here. And it's, and, and again, this is a Calaquendi thing. Those who have been in the Blessed Realm have been changed. You'll remember when the Calaquendi come back to Middle-earth and the light of Aman is still in their faces and the orcs can't stand before them and they're just you know, an enormous step up uh, from the Morikwendi, the Sindar and the, the, the Nandor that have been over in Middle-earth. This is, we're <coughs> given for the first time, some kind of explanation of, like, the mechanism there, how the Calaquendi were changed. Jordan? Um, regarding this spirit world thing, is this the same sort of spirit world that when they're not using a body, or is it the third higher level? That is an excellent question, not explicitly addressed, though I would assume it would be, yes, the same, um, that what the, the, in, in talking about the embodiment of the Ainur and how they can take physical form would be them visibly manifesting themselves in the physical world, um, their existence. that they have, Obviously, they would be existing um, in both worlds at the same time, though they can choose. Um, but yeah, I, I would assume so. Though that's, you know, he doesn't explicitly say that here, but that would seem to work that way. Um, notice, therefore, the gift of Sauron, of course, gift always put in implicit quotation marks when we talk about Sauron, the gift of Sauron to his servants, to the wraiths, is like the gift that the Valar gave to the elves when they brought them to Valinor in the first place, except, of course, twisted, perverted. Um, it's the difference between the enhancement and growth and blessing that is given to the elves uh, to make them greater, fuller, uh, more, more completely rounded creatures. Uh, and instead, Sauron taking, giving to the men who served him this existence in the spiritual world, but doing that only by drawing thin their bodily life uh, and making them into these empty wraith-like forms. Um, but yet, the parallel is kind of it's kind of interesting uh, and kind of instructive. What do the wraiths seek to do? What do they try to... Well, well again, as I said, with the knife, they try to draw Frodo into the wraith world. Here, we see them, in one sense, acting like the Barrowites, right? Let's... You know, they, they, those who are in that state are trying to spread around the love, right? I mean, they're... Or not love... Um, you know they they they're they're in the business of making more wraiths. Um, they want to subdue Frodo to their will to make him a shadow under their. They are shadows under the under the great shadow, and they want to make Frodo a shadow under them, right? To have the kind of dominion over them that Sauron already has. Wait, to have the kind of dominion over Frodo that the, that Sauron already has over them. Um, but again, and this is why they have no power over Gorfindel. He's already there. They can't draw him into the wraith world. Now, hobbits fade very reluctantly, Gandalf points out, and I think that this is an interesting point. We're told in the prologue that hobbits are unusually and unexpectedly tough. That is, that they resist pain and suffering and want uh, much more, much better, and longer uh, than people would expect. When because they look all, you know, soft and. Uh, and, and cute and weak uh, if you just look no further than their round, well-fed faces, as Tolkien says. But they can endure and they're they're slow to fade. Yeah, Marta? Kind of like what we were talking about last last time, which, uh, about fate and everything. Gandalf says it. Um, yes, fortune or fate have, have helped you, not to mention courage. For your heart was not touched and only your shoulder was pierced. And that was because you resisted to the last. So, again, the whole is Fredo special. Well, he's not special, but he did have some good stuff. But he also did some bad stuff, and that, yeah. and that is always important. Yeah, so, yes. yeah, definitely. He was saved by fortune or by fate, but it was also his own choices, right? Because you resisted to the last. Um, he did something pretty stupid by putting on the ring. In that it was stupid. I mean, sure, easy for us to say, but anyway, it was it was it was a bad choice to put the ring on, but the only reason that it didn't stab him was because he was attacking at the time. You know, He lunged quite unexpectedly to the Ringwraith, apparently lunged toward it and attacked it with, 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 you know, ineffectually with his sword, uh, crying out, I, Elbereth Gilthonio, um, which Strider says was a good move by Frodo at that time, that that was uh, more damaging to the Ringwraith than his sword was. And, and Gandalf emphasizes, because you made the right choice there, because of what you did, Things turned out really well. So once again, we can see fate, fortune, yes, but also your own choice and that your own actions do in fact have consequences. Yes, exactly. Frodo is tough. We saw in the in the the, the Barrow, you know, that that seed of courage awakens within him, right? He, um, he has that resistance. But I think the other thing I would want to go back to with hobbits and why they fade so reluctantly, I think it's not just a question of their physiology or something this, because it's not about being physical. Like No physical attribute can make you reluctant to fading because it's not about... It's about you know, going from physical to spiritual. Um, remember th- here Gandalf's comments about there being a power in the Shire to resist the Black Riders? I mentioned this before. Um, what kind of power is there in the Shire? How, why exactly do hobbits resist fading? And I think there are a couple moments where we can get glimpses of why this might be. Eve? It's almost like the, um, this is a weird comparison, but it's almost like the more perfect form of the greed of the Numenoreans. They really enjoy being comfortable. And because they love life so much they don't really want to let it go yes they know it's their time yeah i agree they have a close affinity with the earth we're told um yeah good well is this is why even though they're not uh they're not like the children of the uh, i know this well they are but you know like not like the dwarves of the alps either so long longer than man. yeah i think that's a good point they have remember long life was given as as a as a gift to the Numenoreans, right? But yet, hobbits do have unusually long life. Not quite so long as the Numenoreans, but longer than the average big person, right? There, there is a way in which they, ha- they do have more life uh, in some difficult-to-quantify way, though, that, though age is one interesting way to quantify it, right? Um, think of the compliment that uh, Tom Bombadil gives to Farmer Maggot, Right? There is earth beneath, beneath his feet and clay on his fingers. This is a good thing, right? Both his eyes are open. Um, think of the talk that Bilbo and Frodo have. Frodo, Bilbo says, after all, there's nobody like hobbits for a really good talk. Right? And the first time they talk in the Hall of Fire, they're talking about shire gossip, Right and Bilbo is very interested to hear all of the stories about everything that's been going on with all of the hobbits that they knew in common in the Shire. But then afterwards they retire back to Bilbo's room and keep talking. And do you remember what they talk about there? This is on 232. There they sat for some while looking through the window at the bright stars above the, climbing, the steep climbing woods and talking softly. They spoke no more of the small news of the shire far away, nor of the dark shadows and perils that encompassed them, but of the fair things that they had seen in the world together, of the elves, of the stars, of trees, and the gentle fall of the bright year in the woods. And it's after this that Bilbo says to Frodo in the last paragraph, bless me, but it has been good to see you again. There are no folk like hobbits for a really good talk. That's a really good talk that they have. This is Hobbit life. They don't fade very easily because they are, there is in some sense more of life about them. Um, And this also would seem to be where their power comes from and where the power in the Shire comes from, as weak as the Shire itself might appear from the outside. One last brief note. We've talked about the temptations that the ring gives and the, the, the effect that the ring has. Notice the difference when Frodo actually succumbs to the temptation and puts on the ring in the dell under Weathertop. It sounds very different. Um, page 191 is where it happens. everything was swallowed up in a sudden temptation to put on the ring the desire to do this laid hold of him and he could think of nothing else he did not forget the barrow nor the message of gandalf but something seemed to be compelling him to disregard all warnings and he longed to yield not with the hope of escape or of doing anything either good or bad he simply felt that he must take the ring and put it on his finger he could not speak see the difference Tolkien is going out of his way to say, look, there's no rationalization, there's no chain of thoughts which say, oh, wouldn't it be a good idea, wouldn't it be excusable, wouldn't it be okay? None of that. Just put on the ring, put on the ring. What's happening here? It's almost like the ring is desperate, like, come on, just, just do Okay, I'm not even going to argue. <laughs> <I'm> <laughs> right. Just, just a power play here. Yeah, that, it is just a power play here, and the what... Gandalf suggests later, and what Bilbo suspects later is that this wasn't even the ring, that this was, this was the, the the leader of the ring raids acting on him directly. That the captain of the ring raids, who was the witch king of Angmar back in his previous career, um, this is sometimes confusing, and I will sometimes refer to him as the Witch King. The captain of the Nine Riders uh, of the Ring was at one point back in the day. When both the southern kingdom of Gondor and the northern kingdom of Arnor were in power, um, Sauron split up his forces and he took the captain of the ringwraiths and he set him up as a king in the far north and he was called the witch king, a mighty sorcerer. It was not fully understood that he was actually a ringwraith at that time. Um, and he was the captain. He, he was the captain of the armies of Carindum, uh, And he was the, the enemy of the Northern Kingdom. And eventually, after many, many, many years of campaign, many <coughs> centuries of campaign, finally destroyed, brought about the destruction of the Northern Kingdom uh, of Arnor. And that's why all that's left are the Rangers right now. Um, so he has this very famous sort of previous career. And now he's returning as captain of the Ringwraiths. Anyway, he seems to be influencing Frodo himself directly here with a kind of lack of subtlety, which is uncharacteristic of the ring, where he just comes in and he, he, he just commands with power. He knows the ring is there. He knows the ring bearer is there in the dell. And so he just exerts his power and tries to overcome Frodo's will, put it on, put it on, put it on, put it on, and he gives in. And Frodo later on perceives that in doing that, he was acting not on his own impulse, but obeying the imperious command of his enemy. Uh, and Gandalf suggests that that, that's, that same thing is true there. We'll see this happen again uh, later on. But, um, but I think that that's kind of interesting. Again, the ring has that characteristic style that you can usually, that you can usually identify. Um, okay. I will let you go next time. Council of Elrond,
1: the longest
0: chapter in The Lord of the Rings. All right. For the next class, we will cover only two more chapters, since one of them, The Council of Elrond, is enormous. So make sure you read chapters two and three of book two. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.